Hmm. Well, I see who the crazy people are in Cambridge coming out on a night like this. It's nice to be with crazy people. I like it. Um, I was sitting in the, you know, in the sitting just before this, and uh, <clears throat> contributing coughing to the silence on a very regular basis, um, which I hope people were really grateful for because I'm sure it helped keep people awake. Um, and I st- and there were some thoughts that were moving around about about the Bayasutta and and uh, uh, I remember early on in, in my study with my teacher, um, I learned a couple of things. One, um, if you're sick, you show up anyway, and you do your best, and then when you're done, you go home and go to bed if you need to. And the other thing was, um, I'd been really sick for a number of weeks, and um, had been seeing him at that time every week, and sometimes more frequently, and and I was kind of upset that I had to miss several weeks because I was out for about six weeks. I go in and sit down and start, you know, going on and on about how miserable I'd been and and uh, how inconvenient it had been. And, and he gave me about, I don't know, maybe a minute of that and uh, cut me off and said, what I'm really interested in is how did you practice with being sick? And it completely took me up short because I had no idea what he was talking about. Um, and this place, CIMC, and the, and the teachers here trace their lineage back to the Thai forest tradition. And if you didn't know how to practice with sickness, you'd spend a good chunk of your life not practicing because these people were walking around in the jungle Almost all of them had malaria or dysentery. Um, there were, you know, spiders and snakes and hordes of mosquitoes, and uh, uh, it was not real comfy. And there were no ERs, uh, you know, out in the jungle. They call it the Thai forest tradition. It's really a jungle if you've ever been to Thailand. Um, and it became uh, a really, really important and valuable piece to learn how to practice with illness. Um, So how many of you have been sick um, to one degree or other in the last month? Yeah, wow. Um, (coughs) Two weeks ago I was down in New York visiting with my my daughter and son-in-law and my 20-month-old granddaughter and they just they were on the tail end of you know this really sort of gut wrenching ugliness that's going around um and my granddaughter had a cold so i got back and got back on sunday and on monday had their gut wrenching ugliness <laughs> and then right after that uh, i my granddaughter had passed along her cold to me as a way to remember her by and uh so I've been working on hacking up a lung ever since. And, um, you know, it occurs to me just how important it is to know how to work with whatever our life circumstances are. You know, when we're healthy, when we're not healthy, um, 
when we're suffering a loss, um, when we're scared, uh, when an election doesn't go the way we really desperately wanted it to go, uh, when the environment seems to be... Um, uh, I mean, I don't know what kind of winters you all grew up with, but I grew up with winter when there was friggin' snow on the ground and lots of it, and it was very predictable. Uh, no, no 50 degree, 45 degree weather. Very unpredictable. And if we don't have a way to work with the the basic, one of the very basics of the truth of life, it's unpredictability. Um, I, I really don't see what good our practice is. You know, if, if we can't practice when it's scorchingly hot and find equanimity there, and if we can't practice when it's freezing cold and find equanimity there, and if we can't find equanimity in the midst of physical illness, we're kind of like little hothouse plants, you know. We do really well under very specific circumstances, very controlled circumstances. But you take the plant out into the world, it doesn't do so well. So how many of you know how to practice with illness? Who've been ill recently? Or is this kind of brand new to you? Because I don't want to be preaching to the choir here um, and telling you stuff you already know. Okay. Um, the bias sutta actually has something to say about that. And I was kind of wondering, well, how am I going to you know, talk about what's most fresh for me? Because what's most fresh for me is how I feel right now. Uh, and how, how do I connect that with the bias sutta? So we'll get to the practicing with illness thing shortly. Um, I'm going to just go over some real basics of sort of anchor this sutta and some context for those of you who don't know. Um, it's, it comes from the Pali canon, and Pali was an ancient language in which uh, the Buddha's teachings were first recorded, written down. Um, and it's really the source, the scriptural source, the teaching source of, of uh, Buddhism throughout the world. And um, started out as an oral tradition. And if, if you've ever played the game telephone, where you've got, you know, 12 people in a circle and somebody whispers, um, you know, my aunt is visiting from Yonkers. By the time it goes around, it's, you know, my brother has the hiccups and he's, you know, just got married. It's unrecognizable. So we don't really know what the Buddha said. This stuff was an oral tradition for two or three hundred years. That's a lot of time for things to go awry. Yeah? And a lot of time for competing interests and agendas to get in and, you know, play around with what the Buddha actually said. So the Buddha had a companion named Ananda, and Ananda followed him around and apparently had this prodigious memory. And, you know, who knows whether this is mythology or not, but it's a great story. 
Um, and stories are important, right? We're storytelling creatures. So Ananda had this agreement with the Buddha where he would go to the Buddha and listen with the Buddha and listen to all of the talks. Every time he gave a talk, uh, Ananda would be there. And if Ananda wasn't there, he had an agreement with the Buddha that the Buddha would repeat to him what he had said. Which is, of course, rather heavily reliant on the Buddha actually remembering everything he said. Um, so many of these suttas, these teachings, start with the phrase, I once heard, or thus I have heard. Could be said, once upon a time, <laughs> I heard. And, and then it's actually Ananda saying his best recollection of what the Buddha had taught. So the, the, the canon is huge. I mean, there are, there are many, 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 many sermons. Um, and this is one of them. I love it in particular because it's... When I was doing my training... Uh, my teacher had an expectation that I would become really familiar with, you know, 8, 10, 12, maybe 15 suttas. And beyond that, I was kind of on my own in terms of being directed by my own interest. And, and I found a lot of the literature really, really dry and boring, uh, partly because being an oral tradition, there's an enormous amount of repetition. And you know, for the, hum for the modern mind, it's like you've heard it three times, you want to get on to the next thing. So it's, it's really a practice challenge just to stay with, with the form of, of these writings. And, and the Bayas Sutta is uh, unusual in that it is a, it's, a, it's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's quite dramatic. And it talks not just about a teaching, but it talks about a student. And most talks on the Bayas Sutta focus on the last part of the Sutta, which the, where the Buddha, Buddha lives is really pithy teaching. However, most of the action in the sutta happens uh, before the Buddha delivers this wisdom teaching. So it starts, I was going to read this to you, but I think I'm just going to tell it. Um, so once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away, um, Ananda heard the Buddha say, that by the seashore, about 1,200 miles away, there was a man living named Baya of the bark cloth. Now, we don't really know what that means. The, 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 the people surmise that his clothes were woven from uh, bark strands, which was not uncommon at the time. Um, so Baya lived by the seashore, and he was a person of some accomplishment. He had students. Uh, in some ways, he would be, you know, not unlike most teachers today. He was pretty comfortable. Uh, people provided things for him, like food and clothing and shelter and medicine. And, and apparently, he was quite admired by people in the area. 
But he had a question arise. And the question was, am I an awakened being? Now you have to, you have to imagine that if he's asking the question in the first place, he probably already knows the answer. There's the arising of doubt. And the second part is, well, if I'm not awakened, am I at least on the path to freedom and awakening? In other words, do I have a practice? I may, I may not be, you know, realized. I may not be, quote-unquote, enlightened. Um, but do I at least, am I at least on a path? Do I at least have a practice that's going to get me there? <coughs> um, this kind of doubt is essential for our practice to deepen. You know, these, these fundamental questions of who am I, what is this, where am I going, what is awakening, how do I live, uh, how, what's going on in my life that I seem to keep bumping up against the same self-defeating behaviors, how is it that I, I hold a job for a while and then lose it? How is it that I fall in and out of love a lot? How is it that I seem to, to recreate the same kinds of conflicts in people I care about and who seem to care about me? How do I live in this unpredictable, really uh, incomprehensible world? What does this all mean? These kinds of questions, particularly when they naturally arise, many people are not drawn to this. Right? And if you're not, there's nothing wrong with it. You know, you can't, we don't get to choose our interests the last time I checked. You know, I really wanted to be interested in mathematics. It didn't work out so well. You know, and, and for years, I read everything I could get my hands on by J. Krishnamurti, who some of you know, and listened to all of his talks, and all of a sudden, I was done. I had no more interest. And I couldn't, I couldn't rekindle that interest. You know, we don't get to choose our interests, and we don't get to choose to be reinterested in something we become disinterested in. And if a spark of inquiry wakes up in us, it's really important to honor it, to fan it. You know, there's a difference between what's called great doubt and, and doubt as a hindrance is one of the nivaranas, one of the, the sort of classic things that you find in every, every spiritual tradition throughout the world. In Christianity, they call them the passions. You know, the greed, anger, boredom, restlessness, sloth and torpor, uh, etc. Doubt, in, that, in those terms, will really gum up our spiritual works. Because it's the question that sort of gnaws, am I good enough? Am I really up to this? Which is kind of the core fault line for most human beings. Am I good enough? Am I really lovable? 
So when that, that piece of that kind of doubt is operating, it can spread into everything. You know, my teacher's not good enough. It just, it, it's tremendously corrosive and needs to be examined and dealt with. The kind of doubt that I was referring to earlier is better termed, I think, inquiry or investigation. Um, it's one of the, the so-called seven factors of awakening that, that can emerge very naturally. Um, and when it does, it's important to attend to it. So here this, this question arises with Baya. You know, fairly accomplished person. Am, am, I, am I awake? If not, why not? And if not, am I living and practicing in a way that will f- be fulfilled in freedom? Well, Baya takes a nap, and lo and behold, he gets a visit from a heavenly being, who in the sutta is called a former blood relative. And it's interesting because it, this, this uh, spirit is feminine. And this feminine spirit, who's a relative, says to Baya, not to put too fine a point on it, Baya, you got nothing. Your practice is, is not going to get you where you want to go. And it's a joke for you to be thinking that you're enlightened. Now, now put yourself in bias place. You know, you're pretty well known. You got a good life going. People are showing up and being respectful and wanting to hear what you've got to say. And all of a sudden, something pops into your life and says, this is hollow. This is hollow. This is a sham. You know, you want freedom, you want awakening, not only do you not have it, keep going this way, you won't ever get it. I think a very normal reaction would be to go, to head in the other direction, to deny it, to attack it, to try and find some way to get rid of it because it's so deeply threatening. You know, it pokes right at what I've spent most of my life developing. I got all my money on this horse. And something or somebody comes along and says, this horse will not run the race. And so what does Baya do? He asks two questions. Is there an awakened being that I can go to? And where are it? Where is that person? And this feminine spirit says, about 1,200 miles away, there's some body walking around teaching and calling called the Buddha. It means he's awake. And if you can get yourself there, he'll, you know, he'll, he's able to give you something or show you something or point you to something. So Baya drops 
everything. You know, he doesn't stop to make sure he's got his toothpaste packed and his travel kit. He doesn't uh, make sure, you know, somebody's there to watch the store while he's gone. He doesn't say, you know, it's really not a good time to travel. You know, maybe I'll wait until, you know, it's a little warmer. He doesn't bargain. He doesn't negotiate. He makes a beeline to the Buddha. Now, in the sutta, it says he, he stopped once on this 1,200-mile trip. <coughs> you know, you have, to, you have to see these stories as um, not literal. I mean, what, what the story is saying is he felt such urgency that he got there as fast as he possibly could. And when he arrived at the town where the Buddha was, was uh, you know, teaching, uh, he finds the community of monks and he goes and says, you know, I'm looking for the Buddha. Uh, and uh, somebody directs him to the, the Buddha's on alms round. He's gone on his begging rounds, you know, you know with two or three monks. So the, the um, uh, Baya takes off and finds the Buddha and approaches the Buddha. And I'm going to read you, I'm going to read you this piece uh, because it's... I'm going to read you this piece. Then by a hurriedly leaving Jetta's Grove, which is where he saw the monks entering the town, saw the Blessed One going for alms. Serene and inspiring serene confidence calming his senses at peace, his mind at peace, having attained tranquility and poise. Seeing him, Baya approached, threw himself on the ground with his head at the Buddha's feet and said, Teach me the Dhamma, blessed one. Teach me the Dhamma that will be for my long-term welfare and bliss. So here's the Buddha going about his business. This guy pops up out of nowhere, throws himself down at his feet, and begs for the teaching. The Buddha's response is, this is not the time, Baya. We're on our alms rounds. You've just covered an enormous distance. You've left everything at home. You've gone on pure faith. You've thrown yourself down at this guy's feet. And he says, eh, not ready for you. I'm busy. I don't know about you. I'm, I'm not sure how well I would have taken that. Buddha, no Buddha. But there's something driving by you. There's an urgency. You know, it, it, in when the Buddha in, in the story of his enlightenment is dealing with Mara, you know, the, the trickster figure um, in his relationship, Mara says, life is long. Be like an infant suckling milk. And the Buddha snaps back and says, life is short, practice as though your hair's on fire. 
Again, that urgency that Bai is on fire with. So a second time, Bai is not to be put off. But it's hard to know well, for sure what dangers there may be for your life or what dangers there may be for mine. Teach me, Lord, teach me. Catch the, the awareness of unpredictability, of fragility, a clear awareness that, you know, our life hangs on the next breath that's promised to none of us. In, in traditional training, in, in the Theravadan tradition, um, there's, a, there's an aspect called Maranasati, which is awareness of death. And generally, you don't want to prescribe this to somebody who's having anxiety attacks or really depressed. Not a particularly good idea. But like everything else, if, if offered at the right time, can be profoundly deepening to one's practice and enlivening in one's life. Because what you come to is this sense of how precious this life is right now. And it can really cut down on things like complaining because I feel like crap when I get up in the morning. Good news is, the eyes go open, the first thing I'm aware of is, how can that be anything other than good news? And as we begin to appreciate that edge, that we're always walking along. Now, again, it's, it's a question of what's actually skillful. Because somebody could take this and say, I'm jumping in the hole, pulling it over me, and I'm not going out because it's too dangerous. When it's, it's actually, if timed well and, and taught well, is an invitation to full and lively engagement. So bias very clear. Don't talk to me about tomorrow. Don't talk to me about later. We don't know anything about that. We only know that I'm here and you're here. And I got business with you. I've got business with you. And I can tell you there's not a teacher on the planet that doesn't value that moment like a gift and a treasure. So if you're in a relationship with a teacher, don't let them off the hook. Push them. Because you don't know whether you're going to be around tomorrow or they're going to be around tomorrow. If you've got business with them, do the business. A third time. So Baya gets blown off again. You know, he's made the second heartfelt request and, and anchored it in really part of what's the heart of the Buddhist teaching. Impermanence, unpredictability. And the Buddha says, this is not the time, Baya. A third time. And this is sort of classic in a lot of spiritual traditions. You know, it's like three times you ask. Um, so the third time, Bias says, hard to know what dangers may be for your life or mine. Teach me, teach me, teach me. 
Okay, Baya. You should train yourself like this. In reference to the scene, there will be only the scene. In reference to what's heard, only the heard. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized or the movement of thought, only that. That is how you should train yourself. When for you there will only be the seen in reference to the seen, the heard in reference to the heard, the sensed in reference to the sensed, the movement of thought only in reference to the movement of thought, then, Baya, there is no connection. There is in you no connection with that. When there is in you no connection with that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here, nor there, nor in between. This is the end of stress and suffering. Now, as you were listening to that, there, I, I know that there were moments when I was reading that that you, there, there was only the herd. There was no you there. <laughs> because there was no thinking about what was being heard. It's the thinking that creates the separation. So the Buddha is saying when there's, the senses are wide open, and the mind is considered one of the senses. When there's only that and the intimacy of that, there's no separation. There's no you there. And if there's no you there, there's no story going on about what's happening now. Some of you know the, the image of the, of the two arrows. I get sick. That's the first arrow. I start to complain about it. That's the second arrow. That's the me there. I don't like this. This is inconvenient. You know, I'm coming out on this night when I could be at home in bed. Woe is me. That's the second arrow. That's the you the me, that's unnecessary. And if I'm only attentive and intimate with the sensations of hearing, seeing, touching, tasting, smelling, thought moving, then that gap that's created by the story is not there. There's no me here, there, or in between. And for that, for that moment, there is no suffering. This, this um, in full embrace of being alive with the going out of the reactivity, that's what the Buddha talks about as nirvana. You don't have to sit a dozen retreats and have a, you know, a dedicated daily practice 
to get a taste of that. It's happening all the time. A daily practice and retreat practice will make the mind more open to that. It will recognize that. It will tend to return to it with greater ease and greater efficiency. And each time that happens, that's what the Buddha talks about as the unborn, the deathless nirvana. That's not a final terminus. You know, waking up doesn't happen once and for all. It keeps happening. It keeps happening. It is important, and I think anybody who does this work has the experience of something of a paradigm shift. You know, you really, you really get a, a visceral knowing of, I'm not doing it. I'm not, I'm not, right now, none of us is doing anything to make any of this happen. I'm not making the breath happen or the, the heart beat or the neurons firing in this brain. There's no me making any of that happen. I can guarantee you this is not the talk that I planned to give tonight. And it's happening. I'm not planning it as I go and deciding the next word that's coming out of my mouth. None of us are choosing the next thought that comes to our mind. And if we ask the question, what is there when there is no thinking and rest at the end of that question, we also cannot say, nothing is happening. In fact, everything is happening. And when we're not calling it something, and I'm not suggesting, you know, a sort of spiritual frontal lobotomy where we don't think anymore, that's ridiculous. Or we never plan or any of that stuff. That's just silly. But those, those times, those timeless times, when there's this resting as just this, then we're... we're we're free. And what are we free of? We're free of the second arrow. And that's with, you know, real practice, that becomes increasingly available to us. So, Baya clearly is a ripe person. I mean, he's, he's ready. So, through hearing this brief explanation of the Dhamma from the Buddha, the mind of Baya of the bark cloth, right then and there, was released from suffering through lack of clinging. Having exhorted Baya of the bark cloth with this brief explanation, the Buddha left. Um, now, brace yourself. Not long after the Blessed One's departure, Baya was attacked and killed by a cow with a calf. you don't know what's coming. Right? I mean, you follow not knowing and you follow it with dedication. 
Sometimes you'll find a place that's deeply rewarding and satisfying, and sometimes you'll find awfulness. The, the degree to which that awfulness is awful and misery depends on the extent to which the mind lets go into just the hearing, just the seeing, and so on. So when Baya had said to the Buddha, I don't know what's coming next and neither do you, he knew what he was talking about. And it's a kind of wake-up call for all of us. You know, when you, if you're in a relationship with somebody dear to you, and you say goodbye to them in the morning or in the evening, pay attention to what you're doing. Because they may not walk back in the door again, and you might not either. You know, don't, don't walk away from somebody thinking, oh, I'll, I'll do that later. I mean, we all do that. It's not like, oh gosh, I'm going to decide to make sure I get everything just, you know, all my I's dotted and T's crossed. Let's not make ourselves unrealistically nuts about this. However, we can, through an appreciation of just how precious, and by precious, I don't mean pleasant or unpleasant. I mean, it can really suck and still be precious. Okay? But the precious and unrepeatable and unpredictable nature of this can bring us more fully and in a, and in a more complete way into this life that we actually have. And life doesn't really care whether it's the life we want or not. Have you noticed? You know, one of the teachers that I was influenced a lot by, Joko Beck, said the, very one, the only thing that you can count on in this life is that life will continue to show up just exactly as it does. And it's, it's the invitation to us to meet life on its own terms and become intimate with that. Sometimes that challenge is way steeper than others. But the practice life is about continuing to work that edge. And I think as you attend to this, you'll find that the edge of the practice for each of us is no great mystery. You know, it's around where I, you know, I really, I, I really don't want to do this. Or I really want to hang on to this. Or why are you behaving the way I think you ought to behave? I'd be a lot happier if you just show up the way I want you to show up. There's the edge of our practice the reactive rejecting of life as it is will always not work out well. So Bai has been killed. And the Buddha comes and on his way back finds Bai's body. And, you know, being gored by a cow is not a pretty picture. It's like, you can imagine, pretty messy. So one moment, here's this this on fire with wanting to be free, by a, alive and vibrant. And the next minute, you know, his guts are spilled on the roadside in the dirt. And this is what the Buddha finds. The Buddha saw that Baya died. On seeing him, he said to the monks, Take Baya's body, monks, and placing it on a litter, and carrying it away, 
cremate it and build him a memorial. Your companion in the holy life has died. So they do this and they come back. And you know, you can, I don't know, I can imagine this moment of, of great tenderness and and maybe even some satisfaction on the part of the Buddhas. You know, that he, and maybe some relief, you know, because in the back of my mind was, wow, I dodged a bullet on this one. I could have sent this guy away after he entreated me with such passion. And here he is. But mostly what resonates for me is the, is the, the tenderness that I hear in this encounter and the acknowledgement and that Baya died free. So the monks come back and, and uh, sit down with the Buddha and, and say, okay, we've, we've cremated him, we've built a memorial. Where's he headed? What's his future state? Which to me indicates some that they would ask such a question to me indicates they're not paying attention. They worry because what they're worried about is, oh, where am I going? If this could happen to Baya, this could happen to me. And if this happens to me, where am I going? Which is a really interesting diversion. Where's Baya going? What business of that is yours? Where are you going? Because often we 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 dilute, you know, we dilute the focus of our inquiry. You know, worried about oh, where's so and so going, or where am I going? You know, tomorrow. How how am I living now? You know, what a wonderful question, right? How am I living right now? And what is life asking from me right now? That's the kind of question that, you know, we could carry around day after day, and it would deepen and enrich and focus our lives. So, monks, buy of the bark cloth was wise. No kidding. He practiced the Dhamma in according with the Dhamma, and he did not pester me with issues related to the Dhamma. Baya wasn't trying to nickel and dime me. He got down to what was really important. He wasn't talking about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't interested in reincarnation. The one and only thing he was interested in was the heart of the teaching and how it would free him. Baya, O monks, is totally unbound. And on realizing the significance of that, the Buddha said, where water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing. Now that, that's, those are the five elements that make us up. right? Sort of a classic uh, Indian and Chinese um, medicine ground, you know, the five elements. Where water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing, there 
The stars don't shine, and the sun isn't visible. There the moon doesn't appear. Their darkness is not found. And when a sage, a Brahmin, through wisdom has realized this for herself, then from the form and formless, from bliss and pain, she is freed. No thought, no problem. No self, no problem. And it doesn't mean that we're going to lose track of who we are. You're walking down the street and somebody calls out, Hey, Bob. Bob's going to turn around and say, Hey, what? We're all going to be able to get home tonight. But to begin to be more alert to how the mind creates separation by choosing for and against by wishing for a life that is not happening, by trying to figure out a a future that doesn't exist, to try and figure out a past that can't be recovered, much less accurately remembered, is a form of death. And whenever we catch those moments and wake up to just this, we're free. And we're living the only life we'll ever have. And from that clarity, planning can be skillful. Manning the barricades can be skillful. But coming from that place is very different than coming from a place of separation. And if we're going to move into a, into, a, into a world that's become increasingly difficult and unpredictable and dangerous, I don't see any better place to make our home than what the Buddha is pointing to in this teaching. And from that, each of us move into the world in the way that we're truly called. And we do it with clarity. And we do it with compassion. And we do it with the combination of those. There's a saying that wisdom without compassion is cold. Compassion without wisdom is stupid. I think that's all I got. So, wow. That's probably the longest I've talked at any stretch. I'm not sure if I should apologize. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.